We've talked about our Psalter interpretation toolbox before. Many different tools that we can use sometimes to interpret the Word of God, to, to draw forth its, its uh, deep riches and its significance. And maybe today I'll introduce a, another tool. I don't know if it's new, new to you or not, but it's another tool. And that is that sometimes there's two complementary ways to read a passage and by reading in this complementary fashion, we, we begin to see something of, of the rich depths of the word in terms of its meaning, but also of its implications. And I think we have an example of that here in our text in Psalm 127. And I would say this morning, and I think it's without argument true, that the dominant reading of the text of Psalm 127 is the theme of the sovereign invisible hand of God behind all human events and blessing. It's unmistakable as you approach uh, the first verses here because what the psalmist does is isolate activities which are so mundane and common you could hardly think of, a, of an era in civilization where they didn't occur. Look at verse 1, for example. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. Now, it should be obvious to us this morning that these are two of the most common activities of human civilization to build something and to guard something. You see, uh, men in all times and places and ages have expended their energy at building homes and cities and walls, and then they spend their time after that protecting it from invaders. The thing that strikes us, though, however, is the psalmist takes two of the most common, ordinary, and mundane things of life is that he says it's entirely useless to do this. It is entirely useless to do this. In fact, he uses the word here, vanity. He uses the word vanity, which means emptiness or meaninglessness or absurdity. And the thing that is called absurd here is doing what is common and ordinary and mundane. And what makes it absurd is a person seeking to build or a person seeking to guard unless they do it in conjunction with the blessing of God upon it. The same principle is illustrated in verse 2, for example, maybe from a little bit different angle here. But you have the same note struck here where the psalmist says, it's vain for you to rise up early and to retire late and to eat the bread of your painful labors. Again, I would have you know uh, what is highlighted here, which is vanity. Vanity, meaninglessness, hopelessness, absurdity. It is placed in, in the initial place in the clause here in Psalm 127 verse 2 as if to say, vanity. See, it grabs the attention when you read it that way. And uh, the very placement says that whatever follows after this term is indeed what's vain and stupid and meaningless. So look at what's vain and stupid and meaningless according to the psalmist. To get up and to stay up late and eat the painful bread of labors. Again, this is what is common. This is what is ordinary. This is what is mundane. This is what is common to civilizations. People get up in the morning they go to work during the day, and they go to bed at night. And the psalmist says here, it's all vanity. Unless the Lord is in it for blessing. And to show us just how little the Lord needs our help, the psalmist goes on to show us the picture of what it is for the Lord to sovereignly, by his invisible hand, grant blessing and fruitfulness to our labors. He says he gives it while you're asleep. To show you that what God can do is something he can do quite apart from you. While you are sleeping, God gives you everything that you sought for with all of your industry and your labor. And so it's very clear to us as we work our way into these initial verses here that the, the psalmist is striking the theme and the dominant note of the sovereignty of the invisible hand of God in blessing. Without it, without it, everything is useless and vain and empty and meaningless. 
You could even say this note of the sovereignty of God, for example, and in terms of blessing, uh, ordinary behavior emerges yet again in verse 3. Have the language of vanity anymore, but it's quite clear to us as the psalmist uh, unfolds the psalm from the perspective now of something that is quite common and quite ordinary, and we might even say quite mundane throughout the history of civilization, which is bearing children. And even at that, the Lord strikes the note here, the psalmist strikes the note here, that even the Lord's hand must be in that, or there's no fruit of the womb. And so we have a series of verses here which continue to to take a bright uh, yellow highlighter and and drive home the theme uh, of the the indispensable nature of the sovereign hand of God in blessing for life to be meaningful and fruitful and significant. That's what's dominant. But then you begin to look at the rest of the psalm as you look at verses 4 and 5, and it seems to me there's a sort of subtle pivot or shift in the psalm away from spotlighting divine sovereignty to thinking about human responsibility. You see, it's still tracking with the idea of, of what kind of things in life are vain and what kinds of thing in life are meaningful and fruitful. Well, it's meaningful and fruitful uh, to build the house. It's meaningful and fruitful to guard the city. It's meaningful and fruitful to seek to have children and to build the home together if the hand of God is in it. But it's, it's utterly vain and it's utterly useless to build the house and to guard the city and to seek to even have a family if God's blessing is not in it. But now that idea of seeking that which is significant and valuable is extended, but from a different perspective. And now what is drawn forth is human responsibility. It complements the idea of the divine sovereignty of God in giving grace and blessing and fruitfulness. But but now it shifts the perspective to that which is complementary to it, and that which indeed is done by grace, and that is... The father's role in training up his children. Notice here how the text spotlights the duty and the responsibility of the man as he says here in verse 4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. And you see what the spotlight is upon is not just men in general or or humanity generically. Uh, What the psalmist is spotlighting here is the father. Now, Now in spotlighting that, I don't mean in any sense to diminish the significance and the value and the role of godly wives and mothers. But you see, they come in in a supplementary and complementary fashion because what the psalmist wants to highlight and accent here is the, is the very mandate that God has given to man from the beginning of time, which is to subdue and conquer and uh, have dominion and fill the earth. We're looking at Genesis 1.28 from, uh, through the lens of poetry. And he spotlights the husband, and he spotlights the man, and he says the only way this will be done in such a way that there is benefit and meaning and fruitfulness is if it's done through godly men who are faithful in their calling. So we could say now, this complementary way to read our text is that God blesses responsible training of covenant children by godly fathers and extends their spiritual impact through them. Listen to it one more time. God blesses the responsible training of covenant children by godly fathers and he extends their spiritual impact through them, through the children. So let's think about that main theme in three parts. Covenant children, responsible training, and cultural impact. Covenant children, responsible training, and cultural impact. So we begin here with covenant children. I want to take a moment to do just a bit of translation work so that we can grasp precisely what the psalmist is saying here in verse 3 when he says, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Because in reality here, when you read this phrase in verse 3, children are a gift of the Lord, the word there in the Hebrew is sons. 
It says, sons are a gift of the Lord. And so there is a masculine uh, form there and sense. But it is translated children, and I think probably for a good reason, because as you continue on in reading the rest of the verse, it speaks now of the fruit of the womb. The fruit of the womb. And, and I think it expands upon the sense and meaning of children, and certainly it does it in such a way that it is elastic enough and inclusive enough to allow that what's in view, the fruit of the womb, is not just boys, but girls. And so what is he talking about here is the covenant family. What he's talking about here is the covenant family. And the next thing that he says about these children is that they are a gift. Notice the construction here in verse 3. Children are a gift of the Lord. Now I wonder this morning if somebody has a translation that's a bit different where it says maybe the heritage of the Lord or the inheritance of the Lord. Because that's exactly what it is in the original. It's not gift. and In a sense, we can say that, that there is a gift nature or a gift quality or element to an inheritance. But what's primary in the sense and meaning of the term here is heritage or inheritance. Well, right away when we begin to thinking about that and connecting it to the Lord, we begin to realize this is covenantal language. Children are the heritage of the Lord. They are the the covenant children of the Lord. And so what's being said here is that children born to believing parents, well, they are marked out from birth as a heritage from the Lord. They are God's children. They are from Him, they are for Him, and they are unto Him. And so what it does here is is it... it, well, what it does is it colors and shapes the fundamental orientation that a believing parent is to have towards their child. They are from God, and they belong to Him. And because of that, we're under certain duty and obligation to train them in a way that's consistent with that. But I can't help but spotlight that for a moment and think of just how important that is. Just to acknowledge here at the outset of our thinking about Psalm 127 and our children, that they belong to the Lord. You see, culturally, we're in the midst right now of a great battle uh, about who has ownership of children. Uh, On the one hand, we have the godless state which claims for itself and imagine it has the right and the ownership of all children. Even while they're under your custody, uh, the left today says that your children belong to the state. They don't belong to the Lord. They belong to the village. But Psalm 127.3 strikes out a, a divine claim here very clearly. It says that uh, the children of believers are an inheritance of Yahweh. They are the Lord's covenant children belong to God. The other thing that I see here in verse 3, and I think it's very important to lay hold of it and to grasp the point, is, is the gift nature of these children. The gift nature of these children... And one of the things I think is interesting and may even introduce this line of thought to us is to note just simply the word behold as verse 3 begins. Uh, This word behold, whenever it's used in the Old Testament, really functions to to be a bright sign. It's a bright light or sign saying, look at that. It speaks of something that is so spectacular and marvelous and and worthy of gripping the attention. So already we're beginning to think um, with a biblical mindset here as we come into verse 3 about what's going on here. Something marvelous and spectacular is in view. And so as you read on in verse 3, what you see here is there is a parallel. Children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is the reward. Well, the second clause interprets or or adds to or enlightens the first. And so uh, the fruit of the womb is parallel to children and reward is parallel to gift or inheritance. And the whole construction then is designed to say that the children are God's gift. You see, God can choose to withhold children or he can give children. He's under no obligation either way. And so however many children a family has, well, they've all been divinely given, whether it's one or seven or twelve. Deuteronomy 7.13 
This is all that needs to be said here. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will bless the fruit of your womb. You see, children are of the Lord. They are God's gift. And the minute we lose that perspective, we begin to think that man is the Lord and giver of life instead of God. Respect for life will cease. I think last week was a particularly fruitful moment to think about this. Last week, in terms of what was in the news media, what dominated the headlines, made it a particularly fruitful week to think about this idea of the gift nature of children. Because you, like me, heard all the pearl clutching in the media, right? As um, arguments were being made before the Supreme Court about the Mississippi ban on abortion at 15 weeks. And so you had the voice of abortion rights advocates everywhere reframing the matter from killing a baby to reproductive rights. As the Speaker of the House said, uh, that the House is committing is committed to defending women's health freedoms and reproductive health care. You see, it has nothing to do with the life of this child. It has nothing to do with murder or killing. All it has to do is this, this simple little idea of health care. Elizabeth Prelegar's argument was this. If we allow Roe to get turned over, we might just have six-week bans, eight-week bans, or ten-week bans, and so on. Well, how awful! This is the Solicitor General of the United States of America. This was the official representative of our government to the Supreme Court. And the basic argument of the Solicitor General, if you overturn Roe, we won't be able to kill six-week-old babies anymore. Now, if that's not cold-blooded and reptilian evil, I don't know what is. But you see, this is exactly the perspective which stands behind the alternative to God is the Lord and giver of life and the one who gives us our children as a gift. The only other alternative is that man is the Lord and giver of life. And the minute you take that position is the minute you lose respect for life. And so Psalm 127 affirms that which is essential, which is the gift nature of our children. And it's fundamental to thinking about our thinking to how we train our children. As parents, we must be persuaded that these children are not ours, they're God's gift. And arm ourselves with that perspective. Calvin says here, this knowledge contributes in a very eminent degree to encourage them in bringing up their offspring. In other words, he's saying this is a foundational conviction to being a parent, to being a father and to being a mother. And how you treat your children in your home is they are not yours. You didn't produce them. They are God's gift to you. And because they are God's gift to you, there's a certain way that you're to train them. I think that's so important for us to make sure we're settled on in our convictions and our thinking this morning. Maybe one way I can get there this morning to think about the precise edge of what I'm concerned about here, this gift nature of children, is, is to ask the question, um, when was the last time you turned down a valuable gift? What person turns down a gift? What person says, whoa, uh, I don't need any more good gifts. I already have too many. I was struck by um, a Pew Research poll last week, or not last week, I think it was published two weeks ago. I had a couple of statistics I wanted to highlight. 74% of American adults younger than 50 who already have at least one child said they were unlikely to have any more. 44% of people who are not parents between age 18 and 40, 49 said it was not too likely or not likely at all that they would have children someday. You see, when you replace the gift nature of children with man is the Lord and giver of life, this is what you get. You get contempt for life, you get contempt for the family, and you get contempt for children. An anti-child mentality begins to develop and to permeate society. And that's exactly what we're seeing here in our own country today. And Psalm 127.3 teaches entirely against that. Our children are God's gift, 
our children are covenant children, and our children are to be trained in a way that pleases the Lord. And so that brings us now to our second point, which is responsible training. Responsible training. We see that in verse 4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. There's something here that I think is very important as we begin to work our way into verse 4, just to notice here that a comparison is being made. And you can see that comparison uh, rearing itself here in the words, like arrows and so are. Like arrows and so are. And so verse 4 invites us to come make a comparison here. And what it's doing is comparing the father to a warrior and children to arrows. That's the comparison that's at the heart of our text. The father as warriors and the children as arrows. And so notice here, as we begin to, to work our way into verse 4, the martial imagery here. Verse 4 says, arrows in the hand of a warrior. And the word warrior here is gibor. It means to be a mighty man, to be powerful, to be strong. And all throughout the Old Testament, it is used to refer to, to battle heroes and to warriors who, who showed their martial prowess on the battlefield. And now the psalmist here is applying that to fathers. Because that's the comparison here. Arrows are, are the children, and uh, the fathers are the warriors here. And so the comparison draws out a calling for the father that he's the protector, that he's a warrior. I was struck by how important this is as I was thinking recently about what's going on in the world around us. And You've seen these pictures of the smash and grabs that are permeating our society from Los Angeles to the Bay Area to the Midwest. Violence just erupting, school shootings, all this going on. There was a, a case in Louisiana where the schools were overflowing with constant violence. Why? But one of the reasons why is because men aren't owning this calling to be protectors. But what a great example we had with this so-called dads on duty when a bunch of dads showed up at school to volunteer to impose order on this school by simply showing up and shaking hands and saying hello to the people who were there. The result was that violence stood down. Well, that's the place that God is putting the father in this morning. If you are a father this morning, you are being placed in the position of being a warrior and a protector. Now notice here, the rest of the image is arrows in verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. The force of the analogy makes it clear that the arrows in the warrior's hands are the father's covenant children. The children here by the psalmist are being called arrows. And the image of the relationship between the children and the father is striking. Because it has... The arrow here in verse 4, like arrows in the warrior's hand. Well, why is an arrow in a warrior's hand? Well, the arrow is in a warrior's hand so he can shoot it. You say, well, what's the point of an arrow? Why is an arrow shot? The answer is the arrow is an offensive weapon. It's designed to, to be shot at a long range and to kill. You use a, a sword and a spear and an axe and a knife and different kinds of weapons to kill things up close. But what an arrow is for is to be shot at an enemy in a distance. Why well, find it striking this morning? This is precisely the image that the psalmist used to describe the children and their relationship to the father. The father, as the warrior, takes the child as an arrow up into his hand. And so it's placing... Uh, the children, this relationship of something that extends the, the power and the influence and the impact of the Christian father. You say this morning, well, what kind of arrow is good for offensive warfare? What kind of child is good for warfare? Is every single child good for that? And the answer is no. A crooked one, a broken one, an untrained one, a disrespectful one, a disobedient one, a rebellious one, those won't work. And so the accent now as our text 
uh, moves forward in its thought is placing the spotlight on a particular kind of arrow. The relationship between the father and the child is being developed now through this martial imagery as it goes on to say that they are children of one's youth. And this is where we begin to think of the, the angle of the spiritual cultivation. Children of one's youth, that is children that are born to younger fathers. Children who are born when the father is young. And the point of it is to not just highlight the vigor of the father at the time in which the children are being born, but the time relationship involved. You see, it's not just any kind of children that are being compared to an arrow here. It is children who have been with the father since his youth, which implies time and experience and training. So the language of the arrow then in the hand of the warrior is designed to teach something very important. That of the responsibility of spiritual cultivation. There's no way for the child to be this arrow that storms the gates without training. We come into verse 5, we're going to see this reinforced again when it talks about the man whose quiver is full of them, a very misunderstood image. It implies everything that we're going to say right here for now, though, which is this idea of the arrow in the hand, which is the children of the father when he was young, implies a time of cultivation. It implies a time of training. In fact, it implies a commitment to training. I got to thinking about that. I was struck by a phrase I heard recently, and that phrase was, the left is post-millennial. They want your children. The left is post-millennial. They want your children. In other words, they're playing a long game. They understand that the way you take over a society without firing a shot is focusing upon the education of the young people to indoctrinate them and to change their mind. One way we can take seriously our calling this morning, people of God, to train up children who aren't just children who grow up in our house and and grow old in our house, but actually become these arrows in hand that are launched with the skillfulness of the archer, is to realize that in order for them to fulfill that calling, in order for the father to fulfill that calling, it implies him from the time of his youth when he has these children, to be a trainer, to be one who teaches and builds and, and catechizes and prepares for what that child should be when he's let go of the father's grip. That's important for us to be reinforced in over and again. Because, you know, the more we think about it, the more we realize that the world around us is quite willing to catechize our children. I'm sure you've heard the horror stories of what's being taught from kindergarten. That children are not born boys or girls, but gender fluid. That They don't have to be heterosexual. They can pursue their own sexual identity, whether that's homosexuality, bisexuality, or pansexuality. They don't need Christianity or God to, to be moral. They just need to be true to themselves because being true to yourself is the highest form of morality. This and all kinds of other filth is constantly taught in schools. It's in social media. It's in the media. It's in things that people watch. It's on the internet. And so one of the things that we need to be impressed by in the very call to train up children so that they're arrows is implied that if we don't, someone else will. And so I stress this to us this morning as we prepare to see a covenant baptism where we are called upon to make oaths and take vows that we will train up our children. That men, you are responsible for this. Fathers, you are responsible for this. And what ought to inspire and motivate you to take up that calling with all diligence and faithfulness is to realize if you're not catechizing your children, somebody else will do it. Somebody else will do it. It's not whether your children will be catechized. It's not what they will be catechized. They will be catechized. And so I implore you this morning, fathers, make sure that you're taking these children of your youth and you're training them. Make sure you're training them to understand that they have been created by God and they're made in His image. Train them in the knowledge of their sinful nature and their need of, of Christ's grace. 
Train them in the love of God in Christ. Train them in reverence for the Word of God. Teach them the catechism. Teach them to love Christ's church. Teach them about true worship. Train them in morality and character. Constantly reinforce to them that they've been made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is what is in view here when the psalmist speaks of like arrows. The only way the child will be the arrow in the hand of the warrior is if the father takes the time to teach the children. And so fathers, discipline your children. Encourage them. Bless them with wisdom. Shower them with affection. Give them your time and your attention and pray over them. Mothers, you too have a strong grip. Bring up those children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And I know so many of you are already doing it. I give thanks to God for that. And what a wonderful thing it is that, that the mothers of this congregation are so uh, integrally involved in the training of their children. All I would say to you this morning, in all of your fatigue and exhaustion and weariness, just abound more. Mothers, you, you have such an opportunity to shape and influence your children. It's hard to fathom. Until I see big, strong, grown, athletic men on television when the camera is put before their face say, Hi, Mom. The mother has tremendous impact over her children and shaping their life along with the father. And so wives, as you come alongside your husband to teach them and train them, you are showing your children the power of the love of God and Christ in your home. And it sends them forth finally for spiritual impact. And this is really where I think the heart of, of Psalm 127 comes in here in verse 5 because we talked about the options of, of having a vain life or, or a life of significance. See, that's really what's in view in Psalm 127, this vain life, a life lived without the Lord, a life lived without His aims, a life without pursuing Him. And on the other hand, you have a life that's blessed by God, a life that is, is built in responsible action to God. And here's where it begins to really, uh, the payload and the impact of it all begins to emerge. Because now what the, the psalmist does is move from the gift nature of our covenant children and, and the idea that these children are, are arrows in hand to show what is the aim, what is the result, what is the impact of all of this. And the very first thing it does is, is it amplifies something here that I think is very important. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full. That word blessed speaks of comprehensiveness, a, a fullness of, of joy and favor and grace. It's, it's extremely difficult to, to bring into English. But, but what's being said here is the strongest form of beatitude and blessing is being proclaimed upon the covenant father. That's who's in view in verse 5. Not just any man, but the covenant father. And there's a particular way in which he is blessed here. The verse says, whose quiver is full. We're continuing to extend the martial imagery of our text. Now you see that martial imagery in, in the quiver, which is a part of the, the warrior's kit who is an archer, and he, and he places his arrows in them as he prepares for, for battle. And the blessing is proclaimed upon the man who has taken time to prepare for the battle. That's what's being said here. Blessing is being proclaimed upon the man, the covenant father, who's taken time to prepare for battle. I know the English feels like it's passive here, full of them, as if he's just receiving them. They just sort of appeared in his quiver. But, but that's not what the text says. The text is actually an active form here. And it has the sense of the man who himself has filled it up. We're talking about the responsible father's actions now. It's not just that he's waited and received them. It's that he's done something. And the image begins to take clarity and shape and force and you begin to realize this proactive thing the father has done. He's filling that quiver full of arrows for the battle. 
You see, and built into that image is the idea of preparation. Because you don't put broken and dull arrows in a quiver to go to battle. You only put the straight and the solid and the sharp arrows. In other words, the image is designed to reinforce the call to spiritual cultivation. We misunderstand the text of verse 5 if we think that verse 5 is proclaiming a blessing on somebody who just simply has a bunch of kids. That's not the force of the text. It's not the force of the text to say the man is blessed who just has a gob of children who behave like rugrats. We could easily think of that. There is such a thing of, of lazy men who don't fulfill their office and calling. Who raise up children who are not a blessing. So that's not what's in view here. The blessing that is being proclaimed is a blessing upon the man who has taken time to prepare for action. And the blessing is spelled out in the last part now of verse 5. They will not be ashamed. Notice the impact. Everything that we have thought about so far in our text is designed to build up to this point. Everything we've said. The idea of the children as a gift from the Lord being covenant children. The idea of, of the children bearing this relationship to their father as the arrow in hand. Those who've been prepared and spiritually taught and trained and catechized and disciplined. All of it now... All of it builds to this point. They. Who's the they? The children. The children won't be ashamed. When the children are launched from the father's bow to go out into the world to serve Christ, here's what is said. They will not be ashamed. It means they won't be distressed. They won't be pained. They won't walk around with a sense of disapproval. If you could reframe the, the message here a bit, I think uh, not ashamed really has more of a positive force and connotation to something like conquest, to victory, to triumph. You see, the psalmist is telling you how to have children that go forth with impact spiritually in the world. It's by having trained covenant children who take all of the lessons that they learn from their father and mother. They take all of the wisdom that's been given. They remember all the verses they learned on their mama's knee. They learned all of the examples that they saw as they watched their mother and father train them up in Christ. They take all of the learning that they soaked in through the years of worship and sitting in the preaching of the Word. They take all of the categories that have been placed in their mind through catechism and the study of the Word of God. They go forth with all of the prayers that have been prayed over them by their mother and father and grandfather and grandmother and the whole church. And now as they are released into the world to go serve Christ, this is the impact. They are not ashamed. They go forth unto conquest in fulfillment of that great mandate given by the Lord. We see the way this happens as we come to the action of verse 5. They will not be ashamed when they speak to their enemies in the gates. What is the gates? But really, the symbol of the world, isn't it? You see, the gates in antiquity symbolize the place of social intercourse, intellectual activity, legal disputes. Almost everything you can think of, that gate, that the gates was the center of life. And the text is saying this is exactly where these covenant children have been launched into. They have been shot, they have been sent forth by the Father into the gates, to the crossroads of life. To the intersection of life where people meet. And what does it say? They, they come across and they, they confront their but enemies. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies. 
That's all the people who don't share the values of the covenant kingdom. The enemies are the children of darkness. The enemies are the children of the wicked one. It's those who don't own Christ. It's those who don't come under His authority. It's those who haven't been redeemed. And they stand there at the crossroads of life. And the people of God have sent now their children into the world to continue to extend the dominion that they have been pursuing themselves. And they're not ashamed because why? It says, they will not be ashamed when they speak. You see how the conquest takes place when they are launched into the gates when they land at the crossroads of life and the intersection of commercial and social and intellectual exchange, the way they extend the influence of that godly Father who's trained them is through speech. You see, all that they have learned now comes into play. We need to take speech as broadly as we can. Speech here is the mind of Christ. Isn't that what you're trying to shape in your child? The grace of God. You're seeking to shape within them the mind of Christ. The, the, the transformation of the mind through its renewal in the truth. It's the wisdom of God. It, it's all of the wisdom that you've been seeking to impart to your children as you, as you apply the law of God to their life. It, it, it's the truth of Scripture the knowledge of sound doctrine. It's the law of God and biblical standards of morality, of right and wrong. It's godly character which you've been seeking to forge in them by grace through teaching and example. It's spiritual fortitude which is cultivated and developed as as children are trained and disciplined and brought up in the truth. It's It's the... It's the, the, the mouth seasoned with salt and with grace that, that knows how to give an answer to everyone who asks. It's that ability to speak of Christ in such a way that the person who's listening says, tell me more, that, that sounds good. Because it's so self-evident that the person who is speaking is the person who's tasted of everything that they're testifying about. It's winsome words. It's the ability to take all of that great system of truth within Christianity and to apply it and to speak of it in such a way that you are helping that enemy learn to make sense of life. Do you see people around you who seem not to make sense of life? Do you talk with anybody around you at your job or in your neighborhood or maybe even your family who just can't seem to make sense of life? Well, that's what your covenant child is being, is being launched into the world to as they extend your impact and the training and all that you've done as they go forth to the crossroads at the gates. They are there to bear witness to Christ. And as they bring the full impact of that worldview through their speech and their action, they're not ashamed. Instead, they are triumphing. They are conquering. They are taking dominion. God is blessing them. And by blessing them, He's blessing you, Dad. And He's blessing you, Mother. You see, the point of Psalm 127 is to speak about expanding the spiritual impact of the covenant. It's putting before you something to contemplate and to think about which which motivates you for how you live on Tuesday morning. We can get so caught up in the mundane things of life to forget that all of it is before the Lord. All of it is unto His glory. All of it is about building the kingdom of God. All of it is about taking dominion for Christ. And what Psalm 127 is saying to you, parents, you have this awesome and wonderful opportunity which is to seek to build a life of meaning rather than vanity. 
Our world around us pursues nothing but the clouds and vapors of vanity. It thinks a meaningful life is a flurry of activity and a lot of possessions to keep the sense within us numb until we die. That's a vain life. It goes nowhere. It accomplishes nothing. Psalm 127 gives you a different perspective and it says, you're not here for that, Dad. Yours is a warrior calling to take the arrow in hand and prepare it to go to the gates to extend the kingdom of God. So you build a life of beauty and significance and the exaltation of Christ. Psalm 127 is read wrong if we think it's just pro-big family. Psalm 127 is pro-big train family. See that? It's pro-big trained family. where your impact is being extended to the very gates and the crossroads of life, where Christ is exalted in the growth of His kingdom. Fathers, I say all of what I've said here because I want to motivate and inspire you to be the most virulent warriors you can possibly be. You do that by training and preparing your children to extend the impact that you're making. You have the opportunity to live a marvelously meaningful life. And wives, you are the helpmeet in it. You are the strength in the husband's hand as he clutches the bow and the arrow. You're adding blessing to his labors and joy in his pursuits. You are filling your your child's heart with a sense of affection and love and wholeness and being and all that they need from you that reinforces and supplements all that the Father has done with His discipline and training. If that's a boring life to you, fine. But that's not the mind of Christ. Maybe I can conclude here with an anecdote that ties up the threads of our exposition and illustrates the main point. It's an anecdote taken from the, the family impact of two very different men. In the late 19th century, a, an educator and scholar, A. E. Winship, decided to trace the descendants of two men and their family. One man's last name was Jukes. And the other man's last name was Edwards. And they had both lived in the state of New York. Jukes was an unbeliever who married an unbeliever and lived his whole life as an unbeliever. And Edwards was a believer and he married a Christian. And he had 11 children with his wife, Sarah. By the late 19th century, The man named Jukes had 1,026 descendants. And the man with the last name of Edwards had 729. That's a lot of arrows. But listen to how they turned out. You see, it's not the number of arrows. It's the quality too. The unbelieving Jukes, 1,026 arrows included seven murderers, 60 thieves, 190 prostitutes, 150 convicts, 310 paupers, 440 physically wrecked by addiction to alcohol. And of the 1,200 descendants that were studied, 300 of them died prematurely. Sound like an arrow in hand? The believing Edward's 729 descendants included one U.S. vice president, one dean of a law school, one dean of a medical school, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 60 doctors, 65 professors, 75 military officers, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, 100 clergymen, and 285 college graduates. Do you see the difference? 
Jukes was an atheist whose end was vanity. And Edwards was a godly man who the Lord blessed with a meaningful life. And you know who he is. Jonathan Edwards, America's greatest homegrown theologian who married his beloved Sarah, had 11 children. And from all estimates, a wonderful and blessed set of arrows. You want a life of significance? This is going to sound different than what the culture is selling you. Get married. Seek God for covenant children. Train them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Pray over them with fervency. And their children, their children's children, their children's 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 children. And you'll come to know the experience and the joy of an arrow in hand. You'll know what verse 5 says. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full. Kelsey and Kelsey, you're way, well on your way to a quiver full. Keep striving. Keep training. Keep loving your children. Keep praying for them. Keep setting example of godliness and grace so they're ready to launch. Grandparents, you have a marvelous family. You are in the blessed position to see the fruit of your hands. The arrows you have launched have now become fruitful and having their own quiver full. Today is a blessed day as you see another baptism. But remember, as you hear about this blessed man, you are a supplement to that. You are a part of it. You are the strength. You are the encouragement. You are to continue to provide the wisdom and the grace and the teaching and the mentoring, and the praying. And as you do that, you're going to see a great reward. God is blessing you marvelously. And we give thanks for that. And people of God as a whole, may you too seek uh, to fill your quiver with as many arrows as you can possibly acquire to launch into those gates. Because as we do that as the people of God and respond to that great mandate of God given at the dawn of creation to men to subdue and conquer and multiply and fill the earth, as we do that, we'll see the glory of Christ and His kingdom extend to the ends of the earth. And then we'll all be blessed like this man of verse 5.